there's that level of intimacy that is required. And I think there is still in many organizations this idea that, you know, your private life is your private life and your business life is your business. This is fucking bullshit. Like we're integrated humans. This idea that you can separate your mind from your body, who you are as a mother, who you are as a wife, who you are as a lover, who are all these different roles that we embody as humans. If you try and separate them, do not integrate them into who you are, you will end up not being whole, right? Integrity is about alignment. I think that this sense of deep alignment, this sense of deep integrity, you know, goes through everything. And I, you know, it's your values, the vision you have for your life, the mission you have for your organization, like the number of people who work for companies who don't understand the mission of the company and don't know how to connect their vision and life mission to that is astonishing because when you unite those, that's when you get the power, right? Welcome to the Impact Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Cartavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. We're back here for episode 73 with Dr. Tamson Astor. The title today is Force of Habit, Unleash Your Power by Developing Great Habits. And that's actually the title of Tamson's amazing book. Tamson is here today to talk about habits, most important the way that we can use habits to empower our lives and our life experience. Tamson refers to herself as the chief habit scientist, and she is certified in so many different modalities, which gives her the ability to help her clients and you listeners today to understand your lives a lot differently. This is one of the things I love we're going to talk about today is what is your big, juicy vision for your life? Don't you love that? A juicy vision. So get ready to talk about habits and to empower and transform your life and your leadership. Welcome to the Impact Leadership Podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. Craig and I have a very interesting guest today, Dr. Tamsin Astor. I actually met a couple of months ago. She now lives in my former hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. And here's an interesting tidbit. I met Hamson on a virtual cigar smoking evening. <laughs> so that tells you already that we know it's going to be fun. Hamson is the founder and chief habit scientist. That's the first one I've ever met of Yoga Brain Coaching. She's also an <laughs> author. Her book is called Force of Habit. Unleash Your Power by Developing Great Habits. And basically, she works with clients and helps them unleash their superpower, which is their brain. Imagine that, actually awesome. using our brain for good. We are excited to have Tamson with us, and I know it's going to be a fascinating conversation for everyone. So welcome, Tamson. Yeah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So Tamson, give us a little bit of the Tamson Astor story. 
So um, I'm clearly from the Midwest, as you can probably tell by my spectacular articulation. <laughs> Midwest um, where? <laughs> <laughs> can't you tell? Can't you tell? Uh, so I grew up in London, moved to the US about 18 and a half years ago to do a postdoctoral fellowship and ended up in Cleveland 13 years ago. I started as an academic. I love science and data and thinking about like the tangible information about the way our brains work, the way we engage mm. in the world, how we spend our time, what's going on. And I realized though that academia was not my thing because I found the fact that teaching was something that you were supposed to buy off. Um, and there was sort of frowned on if you were a good, solid researcher. It was depressing <laughs> to me because I felt that, you know, teaching is a really exciting part of academia. Um, I also didn't like the political fiefdom, mm. you know, of the department. Yep. So I, when we moved to Cleveland in 2007, my husband got a tenure track job at Case and I jumped ship and um, set out on my own, which was initially um, to train as a yoga teacher because I was looking for something that allowed me the flexibility to be a mom. Um, and uh, yoga had kept me sane, you know, being a full-time working mom of two little boys. Um, I taught yoga. I then branched into working with teachers, um, inner city kids, working with children on the autism spectrum and with ADHD, using yoga and meditation. And it was really fun. And then hmm. one of my children was diagnosed with cancer hmm. and my life started to really fall apart in terms of symptoms. And, you know, I was getting insomnia and food allergies and all of these stresses. And when I kept going to all of the allopathic doctors, they kept just test after test after test. And when they couldn't figure it out, they would give me a prescription. And I said, look, mm. I don't want to suppress symptoms that we don't understand the root cause for. Like that makes no sense to me. Um, and that was when I discovered Ayurveda, which is the sister science of yoga. And it literally means the science of life. And it's about rituals and routines and looking at the context of your life. Mm. And I started implementing that, <clears throat> creating rituals and routines in my life. And eating at the same time every day, going to sleep at the same time every day, starting the day on my terms, rather than being in a state of reactivity, reacting to the needs of my children, my clients, and everybody else mm. before me, <laughs> right? Right. Um, so I got trained in it and started coaching people in it. When I got, I got trained in Ayurveda, then got trained as an Ayurvedic health coach. I then realized that I wanted a bit more of the quote unquote Western. So I did an executive coaching certification and a mindset training. And I basically, as things popped up that I was struggling to make sense of in my own life, I looked for different techniques and tools. And then I got trained and certified in them and wove it all together into the current business I have, which is that I am a chief habit scientist. And I coined that term <laughs> because I was looking for a word that you know, embodied my background in neuroscience and the belief and value I put on data and science and, you know, gathering that piece, but also, and also like being the chief, like the, you know, the, yeah, the secret absolutely. energy, right? Yeah. Um, but I also just really lean into habits and rituals. And there's something also very um, intuitive and feminine about that, right? I think I've, I've, weave the east and west together and the sort of the masculine the feminine the sun the moon because i think we've all got those energies and if you lean into one more than the other you're missing out hmm. wow that's fascinating 
So Samson, say, say that again. I Ayurveda. Ayurveda. Yeah. Ayurveda. AYU. Yeah. Tell us a little more about what that actually is in terms of the science of that. Sure. So if you take your hand and you blow on it, what do you feel? I feel <laughs> pressure. I feel pressure, which movement. is my breath. So you feel yeah. movement. What else do you feel? Some heat. Heat. What else do you feel? A little bit of heat. A, a breeze, I guess, that I created. That's the movement. My... But you feel moisture, too. You feel that? Not when he's in Florida. He's dried out. <laughs> right. Well, wait, wait, it depends. If I, You're right. If I blow on it, I don't feel the moisture. If I take a breath, I feel the moisture. And you exhale. Yes, yeah. I feel the you moisture. Right? You exhale, you feel the moisture, right? So those are the three key elements of, of, of that are called doshas, that are the organizing principles of Ayurveda. The mo movement, which is vata, which is air and space. The heat which is pitta, which is fire and water, mm -hmm. and the moisture, which is kapha, which is earth and water. So it's the five elements arranged into three doshas. And the doshas are organizing principles that weave through our physical and mental body, that weave through the seasons, that weave through the time of day, and weave through how old you are. Hmm. And what makes them really interesting is that most organizing principles look at just your body or just your mind right mm. or a particular part right. of you right so you think about like the gallup strength finder or your horoscope right. or like your body mass or you know, all of these different all of these different things they look at a very specific unique part of who you are and what we know now is the deep intimate relationship which modern science is now backing up between the mind and the body and what ayurveda does is it gives you a context of your own system your own unique profile and helps you understand how to, which is the specific and helps you weave that into the general, right? So for example, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. and 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., that's fire. That's the fire energy in Ayurveda, right? So you think that's when the sun is the highest in the sky in the middle of the day. That means we have the most bile, the most agni, the most digestive fire in our gut. We should be eating our biggest meal in that time of the day. 10 p.m. between At 10 a.m. and 2 Okay. That's the big window, right? Okay, so lunch. Got, gotcha. Right, lunch. That window. So then you might say, well, hang on. Like, what about the fire at night? The 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Many people will talk about that second wind, right? Be like, I was getting all relaxed and calm, and then I got that second burst of energy, right? That's the pit of fire. And what we know now, when you look at the backing up of the, you know, the ancient 6,000-year-old wisdom that is Ayurveda, with modern science is that in that time window, the brain shrinks, the cerebrospinal fluid increases and washes out your brain. Your memories move from the short-term working memory to the long-term working memory. Hmm. What we've found from studies of athletes is that you get the biggest muscle rebuild in that window. Your digestive tract gets cleaned up, but only if you're sleeping. And that one hour of sleep in that window is equivalent of two hours at any other time, night really? or day. Hmm. Right? Wow. It's just so sexy, right? Like the East and West, like coming together. Do you know? Like, but so the, what's so cool about Ayurveda is that so you've got those like general principles. Like, when should we all be thinking about eating and sleeping? Like, what's the season outside? What kind of food should we be eating based on that? Then you've got your unique profile and how that reacts to that, right? So you can probably tell that I have a lot of energy 
mm-hmm. and that I move a lot and I talk really fast and I get ideas really quickly, right? That is a vata-pitta combination, right? The vata is the movement and energy. So that means that I naturally have a lot of energy in my system. Mm -hmm. When I'm in balance, it's great. Like I get ideas quickly, I'm on fire. When I'm out of balance, I go towards anxiety, right? Mm. Somebody with a lot of kapha, they're those earth mothers, those people who talk slowly, who are like the one you want to go and sit on the lap and hug when you're crying. The ones who just hold space. When they're out of balance, they go towards depression and Mm. lethargy and sleeping too much, right? So when you start to understand your profile, you can then understand how to support yourself based on, you know, what time of day it is, what's going on in your life. And that's what, to me, is really fun about Ayurveda. Wow. wow. So how do so how do you use talk about how you use that with your coaching clients? Because that's fascinating. But it sounds and it sounds like part of that is getting clear on each person's uh, is profile the right word? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So pro- profile, and then how do you integrate that into the work with them? So partly, the, the, what I always say to people is start with the general. Like, when are you eating and sleeping and exercising? So, for example. If you are struggling a lot with sleep, you know, I'll say to people, try and see if you can sleep between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m., right? Which is, and with 5 a.m. is kind of like just dawnish, right? Depending on the mm-hmm. season. If you don't get to sleep by about 10 p.m., that fire will build up and it'll be really hard to get into a, that deep sleep, Interesting. right? So that's one of the things that I'll say to you. So, so one of the symptoms that they're struggling with is, difficulty sleeping, you know, exhaustion, fatigue, because, you know, sleep loss, you know, is really, is one of the biggest issues we struggle with. 39 to 46% of Americans fall asleep unintentionally every day, right? So they could be like driving a car, right? Like it's really frightening. 70 million Americans are on some kind of medication. One in 10 Americans have insomnia. Like we are in a state of chronic sleeplessness. And not only does it make you behave like you're drunk, you know, in terms of like memory loss and and impaired physical action. It also like ages your skin, reduces your sex drive. You put on weight, like there's just a whole load of really unpleasant side effects from it, right? Hmm. So sleep is one of the biggest things that I help people. I'm like, you like get your sleep together, babe. We, we've <laughs> right? heard that so, before and it's, it's still one of those things. It's like, golly, there's just so much to do, you know? I mean, right. between, between wanting to learn or just get stuff done. But yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. So then, so then the next piece is looking at your own profile, right? And how you weave that in, right? So cuffer types, for example, people who have that slow grounded energy tend to be deep sleepers who can fall asleep at any time. And more of their issue is helping them get up in the morning and get a good <laughs> morning routine, right? And get up and move, you know? So again, so that's when you start to play with that energy, right? So one of the things that I will always remind people of is that the pre-dawn energy is vata energy. And vata is the the movement energy, which means it's, a, it's because it's associated with air and space, it's expansive. If you look out through history, you'll see that um, religious practices um, and meditative practices are all done in that pre-dawn hour, okay. right? Because it's a sign of, it's a time of expansiveness mm, and huge creativity and, you know, mm-hmm. and your connection to 
you know, source, spirit, God, your deep intuition, your connection to nature, your connection to people is really, really hmm. bad. Yeah, when I so take a, a long morning walk, that makes a huge difference. My my brain is ex- is just popping with new ideas right. and, and making connections. Getting into that alignment. Right. Yeah. And that's also a really good time of day to write, too. So if you're trying yeah. to write a book, for example, I'll say, right. you know, start to write in that creative pre-dawn window when you're going to be more open and more so when you creative. say pre-dawn are you talking like get up at four yeah i'm like five-ish you know like i i get up at five every day okay yeah so tamson i'm this is fascinating wow so you've you know if it's a profile and there's all sorts of profiles as you alluded to there's strength finders there's myers briggs there's this there's all these profiles and most people get a profile done and then first question is, so what do I do with this information? Mm, right. So talk about that. What you, You're talking about the general um, realities of Ayurveda, and then you've got your individual profile. What, what do we do to put that into action? So what you want to really understand with Ayurveda is the system of opposites. So, for example, if you are very high in pitta, which is the fire, you are going to be somebody who has, like me, Peter is my second most dominant, very good at making eye contact, has a tendency <laughs> towards stepping into leadership positions, um, has a quick wit and intelligence. But one of the things you have to look at with that fire is things that stoke the fire, right? And how you can pacify them, right? Hmm. So if you are dealing with a leader who has a lot of Pitta in their system, you want to help them pacify the pitta, right? So one of the interesting things about Ayurveda is that you are attracted to what is familiar to you, right? So if you have a lot of pitta in your system, you are going to be attracted to caffeine, to alcohol, to spicy food, right? So the things sugar. that like are sugar, sugar is more of a vata kapha. Hmm, but yeah, but so the pizza, so pizza, you're going to be that because sugar is not the same, doesn't have that same sort of fire quality, right? Okay. That, that the chili and the caffeine and the alcohol has. Mm-hmm. So what you need to then watch is if you are finding that your temper is getting really <laughs> short and maybe you're breaking out in hives and you're getting blotchy skin or you're getting diarrhea and just your system is, <laughs> you want to cool it down. Okay. Right? So what does that look like? That looks like cucumbers right? What can you do food-wise? You can eat cucumbers. You can avoid going for a midday run when the sun is in the sky. It's the hottest time of the day. You can do things that are the opposite to the heat, right? Hmm. So when you start understanding your own profile, so for example, if you're pitta, what you don't want to do is drink coffee and go for a run in the midday sun, right? Because that's going to elevate all of the fire things all up at once, right? Okay. And so what's the what's the downside of the extra fire? Is it just the agitation or is there also in that maybe an extra dose of creativity uh, of of energy to right. get things done? Right. So so pizza <clears throat> people will tend to have um you know will tend to lean into leadership. Pizza people also yeah. want data, right? So if you're working with somebody who's pizza, they want to be convinced of moving ahead with something with the why right? Like, why should I do this? What's the point of this, right? So whereas a kapha person, like you think about earth and water, they will, they'll follow the crowd, 
right? Mm. So if people are leading the way, they'll they'll follow, right? Vata people want to be campaigned. Like, here's a framework. This is the things you want to do, follow that. So yeah, so each of the profiles have positives and negatives. And what you want to understand is, and get attuned to is when one is getting out of balance. And we all have three within us, right? So when you're conceived, when the, when you become you in utero, and we're not gonna get into a pro-life, pro-choice, like when that moment actually happens, but when <laughs> when that happens, your, it's called your, um, your prakriti is created, that your unique doshic profile, which is what you, is who you are. Through your life, based on how old you are, based on the season, based on sickness, stress, you know, emotional well-being, will push you in and out of different levels based on your natural constitution, right? And that's your vikruti, that's your current state. So what you, what, you know, if you get interested in this, your task really is to understand your, what your natural baseline is. And then when you're getting out of balance, you kind of go, so for me, when my temper starts getting really short, I know that my pitta is getting inflamed, mm. right? So I need to pacify the pitta, right? If I'm starting to find that I'm waking up several <laughs> times a night, or I'm getting anxiety. I'm like, oh, that's my vata rising. I need to do things that pacify the vata. And it's a thing of opposites, right? So I'm curious, you talked about pitta is the right word, right? Pitta? Mm-hmm. You said those folks tend to lean into leadership. But I know one of the risks of all these profiles <laughs> is that people then become a label. Well, you know, if you have that, then you're going to be the leader. But does it really mean you're an effective leader? Like you have yeah. leader gift or you're energetically, you tend to step in versus following. Ener- right. You energetically tend to step in. Doesn't mean that you know how to do it right. You know, you have to have emotional <laughs> intelligence. You yeah. have to have managerial experience. I mean, and that sort of leads into, you know, I think one of the things that for me has been really exciting about the last couple of years is the rise of people like Vishen Lakiani and Brene Brown and Glennon Doyle. Yeah. And, um, Abby Wombach, who are saying, let's challenge the current models of leadership, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, even look at like Richard Boyatzis, where I did my executive coaching certification, right? Like there are different ways to be a leader. And this idea that there's a one size fits all, and that you need to always be this kind of leader in every single situation. I mean, anybody who's been a parent knows <laughs> that doesn't work. Like right. I have two boys and a girl. My boys couldn't be more polar opposite. And I couldn't try and you know, lead them and engage them and inspire them in the same way, even though they're the same gender and they look very similar, you know, and they've got the same parents, right? Well, doesn't that come back to leader laziness? I mean, you know, ultimately, oh, you know, well, this is what's comfortable for me, not what's best for the people that I'm leading. And I think Abby Wombach does a really good job of articulating Mm -hmm. that in Wolfpack, right? The importance of really recognizing that. So Tamsa, it's interesting. You mentioned some of these authors, um, and it no coincidence. They, I believe, everyone you just mentioned are female auth- authors. No, not Vishen Lakiani. Okay, that one I didn't know. But what's interesting is pretty much everything I have read, and maybe it's what I'm finding, but I could run down a list of male leaders, consultants, coaches who say the exact same thing. I mean, to me, the evidence is overwhelming that what leadership calls for today is a whole different way of leading and vulnerability being at the heart of that vulnerability, empathy, all of that. That's 
that's not even debatable to me now in terms of what we know. Yet that is not the norm. It's not even close. So what do you find is the biggest obstacles to that? We know what it is. We know the answer. I think partly, you know, so there are a few things that come up. One, I think, is the shame piece. Um, I think there's still a big energy around you know, and it's, and it comes into all areas of leadership, like as a parent in a business and friends and you know, like volunteer, like all areas that you step into a role of leadership is this idea of shame and being able to admit that you're wrong. Right. Because I think there's still this energy that if you are in a position of authority, if you are a leader that's saying, I messed up, I'm sorry, I did that wrong. You know, I made a mistake right? There's still some difficulty with that. And I think that's partly because we don't encourage, I think it's partly our educational system. We don't encourage people to fail enough and be comfortable with failing. And if you've been an entrepreneur, you know, the only way to grow your business is to fail and fail and then fail a few more times and continue to fail because the people who fail are the ones who are end up being the most successful, right? And so I think part of it is the failure thing. And then part of it is that we're not taught to have stressful conversations. Right. I think we are not raised to say, like, I could tell that made you feel sad or that made you feel uncomfortable or I did. You know, how can we have a conversation about that? And there's that level of intimacy that is required. And I think there is still in many organizations this idea that, you know, your private life is your private life and your business life is your business. And, you, and, you, and we and 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 I and like, can I swear? OK. That's just fucking bullshit. Like we're integrated humans. This idea that you can separate your mind from your body, who you are as a mother, who you are as a wife, who you are as a lover, who are all these different roles that we embody as humans. If you try and separate them, do not integrate them into who you are, you will end up not being whole, right? Integrity is about alignment, right? Yeah. So in yoga and, and, and Ayurveda, we talk about the kosha. We talk about you've got your physical body, you've got your mental body, you've got your energetic body, you've got your intuitive body. And if they are not in alignment, you are not going to be healthy and you're not going to be showing up in your best self. And if people question that, I say, when you walk into a room, can you feel someone's anger? Yeah. Yeah. Like you can feel their energy body emanating beyond the physical form, right? Yeah. You can feel their fear, their sadness, right? This is a real thing. And if we start separating all of our roles, all of the parts of ourselves Hmm. and go, that one doesn't get to enter this room or this conversation, (laughs) then people are not like that doesn't make sense. Right. Right. Well, you said something really powerful there that I don't think it's much conversation. It's something that I know personally, I feel in my own journey, it's the definition of integrity, because you said integrity is about alignment. And that's almost never talked about. Most organizations or leaders say, I value integrity. And you ask them what it means. They're going to give you some version about honesty in terms of what they say. I'm I'm not a liar. But to me, it is about alignment. And it's not only alignment in my body and in my energy, but also alignment in in my my views of the world. Like that's something. Your values. Yeah. You know, my values. So if I say I value this, but I act over here, I'm out of alignment. But a more subtle one is I say, I'll tell you, I'll just go into it. Right now, I'm seeing it every day in the election contest. Context. You know, someone says because of their party, 
their view of this situation is X, but if it was the other party, their view would be the opposite. And to me, I'll say you lack integrity because your opinion changed based upon your party and which party is. That's the lack of integrity to me. And I believe if people were focused on integrity, maybe they'd get some attention, they'd give it some attention because come on, you're out of integrity now. Right, right, totally, totally. And I think that, you know, this sense of deep alignment, this sense of deep integrity, you know, goes through everything. And I, you know, it's your values, the vision you have for your life, the mission you have for your organization, like yeah. the number of people who work for companies who don't understand the mission of the company and don't know how to connect their vision and life mission to that is astonishing because when you unite those, that's when you get the power, right? Absolutely. Well, I think you, you threw in an interesting phrase there. I don't know if you even were aware of it. You talked about the company's values and mission but you talked about the person's mission. And I know for a fact, because I regularly ask people, what's your personal mission? And I'd say it's about two out of 100 have an answer to that. So they get caught up in some corporate mission, but they don't even know what their mission is. And they'll go, what do you mean my mission? So So yeah, who the hell are you? Yeah, so many people fail to plan their life. Show up, what's the impact you're going to create? Tell me about you. you, what do you stand for? Me personally, I uh, stand for, <sighs> I'm re- actually, I'm rewriting a big manifesto about that right now. So it's kind <laughs> of, it's cogitating right now. But um, I stand for people being able to access information that empowers their life choices. Hmm. And I think that the way to get there is to disrupt. I think my way to do that is to disrupt people because if you look at the history of the civil rights movement, the history of the LGBTQ movement, to get their voices initially heard, they had to conform to the current model, right? So you look at the Woolworth counters, all of the black people there wearing suits, ties, very smart, Mm. sitting there quietly, right? Conforming to the model of what, like the white male patriarchal model of what it meant to be a respectable person, right? You look at the first marches on Washington and the LGBTQ community, the lesbians had to wear dresses and skirts, the men had to wear pants, the gay men, right? There was this like, and that, Hmm. nobody joined. You look at Stonewall, that was when that whole idea broke open, right? So this idea of respectability as the only way to get your voice heard. So I want to disrupt that and say that you don't need to follow the current model to get your message heard, right? And that the bigger message is that when people have access to information about their body, about finances, about the planet, about all things, you empower them to make better choices, right? And particularly for women, people of color, LGBT, people who have been minimized and diminished, those are the people that I'm like, I'm coming to support you, baby. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that Jeff and I are very passionate about as well. That's yeah. Wow. So talk more about this idea of your, what I heard you say is empowerment through disruption. So if you were sitting here talking to, so you're talking about some social causes and social issues, how do you translate that disruption and empowerment into your coaching client? What does that look like? So that looks like you don't have to do it the way you should. I talk about that a lot in my book, right? You know, it's like, you, you know, the, the research 
comes from this idea of the three selves, right? You've got the ideal self, the ought self, and the re real self, right? And I take it on in terms of like the shoulds because it's like, don't should on me, don't should on other people, right? Which of course is fun, right? Like don't masturbate either, yeah. right? Like I must, I must, I must, right? But this idea is we have the real self, right? This is, you know, the, like, I'm a white, white woman, I'm 44, I live in the Midwest, right? That's the real stuff, right? Then there's the ought stuff, right? I ought to weigh this much. I ought to look this much. I ought to believe this much. I ought to make this much money, blah, 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 right? And that's all the stuff that comes externally from culture, society, and so on. And then I feed with my own sort of negativity and fear, right? And then you've got your ideal self, which is what I want people to lean into, which is what turns you on? What legacy do you want to leave? What excites right. you about the world? Rather than you're a woman, you should go to college, get a lot of debt, get married, have kids, get a mortgage, right? Like, great, <laughs> if that's the life you want, do it. Like, that's what I did, right? And then I realized, F that, like, that's not the life I want to lead anymore. And I stepped away from that. So what I want to empower to do is wear what they want, love who they love, do the businesses that they want, as long as it's not hurting other people and it's lifting everybody up, right? What's the, a rising tide lifts all boat, boats, mm. right? I think there's this idea that, you know, that, you know, there's the fixed amount of money and that if I have money, you don't have money. That if I have power, you can't have power. That if yeah. I'm, you know, and I'm like, zero that's sum. not the right way to do it, right? It's a zero sum game is BS, exactly. So I think with my coaching clients, what I'm really empowering them to do is go, Think about this big, juicy vision you have for your life, right? And if you work for an organization, how does that fit within the organization's vision and mission, right? Then that's the telescope, right? Like, where are you going? Then let's take the microscope. How are you spending your day? What are your daily habits? What are you doing that connects you to that? And then let's use some mindset to keep you on path. Because what's going to knock you off that path Absolutely. are the shoulds. Yep. You know. Or it's undermining ourselves. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, or undermining ourselves by our beliefs. You know, I, I am just not able to do this. I am, I'm not able to learn that. I, I'll always be fat. I'll always be, you know, whatever. And when we have those kind of beliefs, that undermines anything that we want to do. And what I found is, you know, to your point about habits is that's something that if we prepare our minds in the morning, our days can be radically different. Totally. Totally. Yeah, no. And I do that every morning. I move, I meditate, and then I sort of channel what I meditated out into my journaling. Because part of my meditation mm. process is visualizing what I'm creating. Mm, very good. But Tamsin, to, to Craig's point about beliefs, I mean, I similarly believe that our beliefs are what, my, my beliefs are what get in my way, bottom line. Yep. Challenge I believe exists, there's a belief, that was a, no pun intended, is that a lot of those beliefs are not really fully conscious most of the time. Right. I don't, you know, pe most people too, in my experience, for example, yours about weight, most people don't look in the mirror and say, I'll always be fat. They don't actually say that, but what they feel, but their brain's telling them you're the fat kid. You'll always be that. So what do we need to do or what are your clients? How do you help them get through these unconscious beliefs that are in the way, but they're not necessarily 
conscious beliefs that they have? So what I start with is explaining the psychocybernetic loop, right? Which is that your beliefs create thoughts, your thoughts create feelings, your feelings create actions and words, and that then creates results, and your results then feed your beliefs, right? So that's the psychocybernetic, and the cybernetic loop mechanism is like a, you know, like a like the, your uh, the thermostat in the house, right? It's constantly like set. Right. And it's like, oh, we're, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, we're correcting. Oh, feedback loop. Right. <laughs> this is this loop. Right. I believe it. Think it. I act. And it goes round and round and round. So if you can identify the belief, you can change it. Right. So if you can identify the belief, it's a you have to recognize that it's a decision that you have taken. Right. Your beliefs are decisions you've taken and you can change them. Right. So if you can identify the belief, you can go there. If not, you've got to look further down that psychocybernetic loop, right? Mm. What am I saying? Right? Words have power. Am I always focusing on the I don't want, I can't have, I'm not capable, all yeah. of the negative, right? And if that's the case, you need to really dig in on your language and retrain your language. So what a totally. really good way to do that is mantra, right? You know, like look at Bob Proctor, right? right. That that whole world of Focusing or the conscious logos of now, like I love that book, Robert Tennyson, you know, talking about, you know, don't use things like want, don't say I want, because want has a, a like a grasping quality, like I desire, right? Like use words like that instead, right? That don't have that kind of graspy, closed fist, they can't come to you energy. Mm, so you, so basically, if you can identify the belief and it's conscious enough, right? And there are a whole load of things that you can do to pull things up out of the subconscious, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, I love getting clients to write lists of a hundred for certain things because the first 30 or so are going to be all of the obvious things. But if you sit your ass down and don't get up and write to that a hundred, you're going to start pulling up stuff that you're like, who knew that was there, right? And you have mm -hmm. to write it with a pen because the way our brains work, is that we process information more deeply when we write it with a pen than when we type. Hmm. Ah, okay. Thus, thus journaling or handwriting the journal. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. The Impact Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Cartavera. Cartavera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, resources, events, and a community to help you grow. At Cartavera, we believe that you can't grow a business bigger than you, that your company is limited by your growth. We blend personal growth with leadership, team, and business growth to give you a single place to grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. You can find out more at cartavera.com. Welcome back. So, Todd, you know, it's interesting. This whole conversation, we've been going for however long, and I don't know that you've used the word habit. <laughs> so talk about as the chief habit scientist, and I know you've been talking about habit this whole time, right? <laughs> but you haven't used the word. So give, start giving us that context of what the, where does the idea of habits fit in this? Sure. So, you know, firstly, one of the things that I like to remind people is that the definition of habit is negative right? It's something that you find hard to stop doing, right? If you look <laughs> up the definition. So that freaks out. And a lot of people will use habit in a negative context, right? I've got a bad habit of drinking a bottle of wine if I open it. 
you know, watching four episodes of Netflix, you know, like they talk about like, I like in, in the negative, right? So oh, wait a minute, um, just so I'm like, clear, opening a bottle of wine and drinking the whole bottle is a bad habit. I... Yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to fog those channels. <laughs> so when I, th when I think about habits, it comes into a lot of different places, right? One, I've talked a lot about mental habits, right? Mindset, those are mm -hmm. mental habits. So I've been talking a lot about how those factor in, right? Looking at your bigger vision and mission, that factors into your habits because you have to make it a habit to look at those because only about 1% of the world, I think it's 16% of the world takes a moment to reflect on and like write their habits down. And then I think it's like 4% actually, you know, follow through on it and 1% revisit it. But so part of that whole process has to be a habit too. But one of the things that is really important about habits, which is where people get lost. And one of the things that I am a huge advocate for with respect to habits is understanding the neuroscience of habits, right? And most people, when they think about habits, they just think about the behavior right? They think about the action, the going to the gym, the not going to the gym, the, you know, eating the cookie, the not eating the cookie, the fill in the blank, right? The I'm going to going onto Facebook and rather than going to check your email, whatever the, the quote unquote bad habit is, they think about the action. Habits are actually made up of three parts. The cue, the thing that triggers the habit, the behavior, which is the middle bit, the action, and then the reward. So habits are made up of three parts. And when you look at New Year's resolutions, which we're just coming up to, and it's always a really fun, juicy time of year for me, because by February, 92% of people have quit their yeah. New Year's resolution. One of the key reasons is they haven't looked at the cue and the reward. They haven't looked at what's triggering the habit cycle and what they're getting out of doing the habit or not doing the habit, right? And so they're using willpower to muscle through and willpower like a <laughs> like a like it fatigues like willpower does not last right that's why you have to yeah. create these systems right we make 35,000 decisions every day wow 35,000 so that's why you want to create connection between them so that you can reduce those decisions and that's where understanding the cue and reward cycle fits in hmm. well, i think one of the things that I, that's really helped me as i started developing my own habits for for a morning routine was really starting to understand how when I set up the day, when I have the energy in the morning and I say, okay, this is what I'm going to eat for lunch. This is what I'm going to eat for dinner. You know, that helps to, to manage what I do and what I don't do. I'm going to you know, get these particular things done and I'm going to show up this way for my wife or, you know, something like that. And so when I'm more intentional about my day by planning it right up front, it makes a huge difference in the quality of that day. Mm -hmm. Totally, because you're reducing the decision. I mean, that's, you know, there are some, I think, I think, I think it was um, maybe Darren Hardy or maybe it was him talking about Jim Rohn saying, because he was his mentor, talking about the importance of, you know, not starting the day until it's written out, right? Because mm -hmm. if you wow. sit down and think like, okay, what am I going to do today? You'll faff about and not do it. Whereas if you, you know, at 6am or, at, you know, 5pm the day before go, you know, then bump, 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 bump. Right. And you just, then you look at your plan and you're like, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, it's like what yeah. Gary Keller says in his book, the one thing says willpower is not on will call. Exactly. 
exactly, exactly. So that's about creating the system. And that's what understanding the science is really important about, right? So the cue yeah. and what, you know, when people have very successful morning routines, they've understood the importance. So there are five cues. And one that's really easy to channel is the previous habit, the previous action cues the next one, mm -hmm. right? So if you do your morning routine in the same order every day, it's going to stick faster oh. and stick longer and be more effective because you're cueing the next behavior with the one before, right? Okay. So when people are creating a new habit sequence, do it in the same order. And it's less important whether it's, you know, five minutes of meditation or 40 minutes of meditation followed by five minutes of running or 40 minutes of running followed by five minutes of journaling or 40 minutes. The point is, is that you do it in the same order because then mm. that previous habit is going to cue the next habit gotcha wow so good so tamson you used a phrase there you said starting a new habit and one of the things i've heard over the years is just a wide range of theories i'll call them theories on habits so many people will say i've got a bad habit to your point and their focus is i need to stop the bad habit mm. and what i've heard more frequently seems to make more sense is I think someone once said, you don't stop a bad habit, you create a new habit that doesn't involve that old behavior. So talk about this process of, is it a new habit? Are you changing habits? What are we doing with our habits? Right. So one of the reasons it's really hard to completely break a habit is what happens when you create a habit. When you create a habit, you're creating deep wiring right so you probably heard that expression what fires together wires together it was donald Hebbock in the 1940s he coined that phrase and what he's talking about is the myelination between the neurons which is basically like if you think about like a headphone set it's the it's the rubber or the plastic on the outside which makes the signal travel more quickly in our right? brains in in your brain and and the ancient yogic texts talk about it as like the grooves in the brain from the wheels of the cart horse yeah. right once they're there, they're not going away, right? Hmm. So in terms of getting rid of a quote unquote bad habit, I try to avoid using bad habit and I'll talk more about like habits that don't serve you because when right. you start getting into the judgment thing, you end up feeling really shitty about yourself and right. you shame yourself yeah. and it makes it much harder. But you want to just think about replacing it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's that's why things like, you know, um, AA are so effective, right? So you're replacing with something else, right? So you want to think about how you can replace one habit with a new habit. Yeah. So when you're doing that, it takes a while, but you again, want to look at what's the cue, right? So one of the cues that is a big one is emotion, right? I feel this way and I do this thing, yep. <laughs> right? Somebody calls me up, I flip them the bird, I honk my horn, right? Like somebody sends me an email and I like, you know, have a glass of wine, right? Like, you know, like it's often like that says that's an emotional reaction, right? Is a big cue that we have to learn how to navigate, right? So what you want to look at is what is cueing this? What is the thing that's triggering this habit cycle? Mm. And when that is, when I'm feeling that, if it's an if it's emotion, if we're working that one, what is something I could do instead, right? So you are figuring out a different path, right? Which is going to give you a reward that's positive. And one of the things that I will say to people about thinking about that is that after a while, the habit cycle, the reward will be, the, the, the behavior cycle itself will give you the reward, right? So for example, you think about going to the gym. If you haven't worked out in a few months, you go back to the gym. The first week is horrible, right? <laughs> I experienced that recently. Right? 
right? And then, but then after a while, you're like, clothes fit better, I've got more energy, right. I'm sleeping better, I look hot, right? Right. And so you don't need the reward because you start to feel it, right? Yeah. But in that initial stage, when you're trying to cultivate it again, you can give yourself a reward that has nothing to do with the thing. So it could be, yeah. if I get to the gym that day, I'm going to go and get myself a $5 drive through coffee that I normally would buy. And I'm going to do that for the first week until I start feeling the inherent reward of the habit building, gotcha. right? Like I think about it with kids, like, you know, when you putty training kids, like you give them gold stars. Like my teenage sons don't need gold stars, anymore, <laughs> you know? <laughs> One would hope. <laughs> right? Like, you know, but it's about building that reward cycle. I mean, you can also yeah. with, with habits, the other one that is, is, is this, this is a stick in the carrot, right? For some people, the stick works better than the carrot. So during the election cycle, one of the ones that I was saying to people is if you are really committed to something and you really want to do it, but you're worried about your ability to follow through, write a check for an uncomfortable amount of money to, to an organization that is everything that you hate and despise and would not want your money going to. <laughs> Give it to a friend of yours. And if you don't run that 20 miles a week for a month, lose that 10 pounds, whatever it is that you're committing to, they have to mail the check, right? Wow. <laughs> or hey, I could just write a check and say, okay, Julie, this is this is for clothes for you if if I miss this target, right? <laughs> but you're but you're gonna get a reward out of that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a, that totally, that's, that's, that's a little sneaky bypass, Craig. I'm not buying that one. <laughs> so, Tamson, you raised something really interesting. In this process of habits and, and shifting from the habits that don't serve us, I'm going to give you a really quick example. How important is it for them to really understand where that habit comes from? And here's my example. I have a very close friend who struggled with smoking for decades. You know, it's one of those, I really want to quit. And he would try everything and couldn't find his way. And the reason he found his way away from that habit is that we went through a process with him that helped him understand that the driver of his smoking had come when he was a little kid who had learning disabilities and, was, and went away and was put in the special kids room. And he remembered actually a scene with a teacher when he was like eight years old where he felt totally shame, not by the teacher, but by the teaching model. And he realized that he felt like an outsider. And the only time he didn't feel like an outsider where he belonged is when he smoked. Hmm. And then he realized that he only smoked around other people. But he was able to stop smoking only after he figured out what was driving. I mean, it was a, a core desire because if I don't smoke, basically, I don't belong. Was the, mm. was the loop that he had created. So how important is it for people to get to that level of depth before they can start to shift their habits? I think it depends on how, whether they are able to do it or not, right? I mean, you know, I think, part of, I think of it as a sort of trial and error basis, right? So if you commit to a habit and you manage to do it, then woohoo, right? If you don't, <laughs> right? I mean, some people find it much more easier than others, right? And the data on how long it takes to create a habit is kind of 21 days to 265. And I tell people the minimum of 30 days consecutively based on the NASA study on convex glasses and lenses um, and the way that it takes a minimum of 30 days for the brain to rewire. But, you know, one of the other very powerful things, again, for that, and it, 
My father is a Jungian analyst. You can spend a lot of time <laughs> digging in the past. Right. And for certain things, it can be really helpful, right? Like your friend. Other times, it doesn't serve you in terms of moving forward, right? What you need is more of the, what I call a sort of, well, not, with the CBT model. Like when this situation arises, I have two choices. What can I do, right? Where can I go right. with this, right? And one of the things that I think can often be very helpful there is with, in terms of changing your habits, is understanding your big why, which is why I always get my clients to look into the vision and mission people piece of this, right? Yeah. Because, you know, for me, like, I want to be healthy, not just because I want to be able to get up every morning with, you know, and without pain and discomfort. It's because I want to serve. Like I'm yeah. committed to serving people and being the best mother I can. And I plan at the age of 90 to be the mad ass grandmother who maybe still does keynotes and, you know, is running around the globe and still doing headstands. I awesome. can't do that if I eat bad food. I can't do that if I don't sleep well. I can't mm. do that if I don't take vacations, take time off, play, relax, right? So, Wait, you, you know, we have to take care piece, of ourselves? <laughs> right, this is this like, this, I mean, this is the thing I found when I moved to America. I'm like, oh my God, like the land of freedom is actually like, I'm gonna work 100 hour weeks. Like, Imprisoned. what the hell is that? Yeah. And have no vacation. Wow. What is this, right? So I think one of the biggest things is really to understand your bigger vision and mission. And can you connect your daily habits? Right. My dog, one of my sons has let my dog into the garden. Um, connect your daily habits to your bigger vision because that will also pull you forward, right? Mm. So when you think about understanding your past, if it's, going to, if it's the only thing that will release you and let you move forward, yes. But I'm not going to say to people, let's start by digging there. Let's start by looking at what's going to pull you forward, right? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the one of the nicest ways I've seen that written about is Brene Brown, like the face down in the arena, right? When you're face down in the arena, what do you do? Do you go, blinker, 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 I'm going to get back up and go on, right? And I'm not going to think about how I got here which means probably I'll do it again and end up here, right? Or am I going to spend my whole time looking back and going, I hate these people. I hate those experiences, everything I did. Or are you going to go, okay, like, I'm here. How did I get here? What can I learn so I don't get here again? And let's look to the future and pull ourselves forward, right? Hmm. Oh, very good. Yeah, one of the things that, you know, as we talk about, building habits. And one of those things that are kind of, kind of an extrinsic motivator, sort of in, intrinsic is uh, what you have on your wrist. You, you have the Apple watch. And mm -hmm. I, with mine, I'm a, like 700 days of hitting all of my move and stand and uh, exercise targets on there. And I don't want to miss a day, right? So it's one of those things that's kind of like saying, okay, you got to do this. Um, because I want to not break that streak. So that's actually been really helpful. I also have another app on here called Streaks, which allows me to say, okay, these are the things that are going to help me build the right habits. You know, I'm spending this much time doing this. I'm sleeping six plus hours a night. I'm doing these different things. And I, I get to, you know, say, hey, yeah, I, I did that today, right? And so it builds this series of streaks that I can say, hey, all right, I'm, I'm accomplishing something. I don't want to break that streak. How much right, is that? Right. How how effective is that compared to 
maybe other strategies for developing habits? So yeah, so that's that ties in with the with the feedback loop, right? And that's that's also partly like the you know, I mean, I love the way Gretchen Rubin and the Four Tendencies talks about like the intrinsic and the extrinsic. You know, what are your drivers, right? So for example, I you know I love my Apple Watch too because it's like Tamsin, your exercise rings are usually further along <laughs> by this time of the day, you know, and that makes me go, oh, great, I'm going to get up and go for a walk. I I told my mum about that. My mum said. If I had a watch that said that to me, I'd take it off and I'd stamp on it, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> right? You have to like you have to know thyself. And that's one of the things that I love about the Ayurvedic lens, right? Is it's this idea that we're all unique and not in the kind of like, you know, snowflakey way, but in what works for me may not work for you, right? And so for example, right, I as I said, I'm Vata, Vata Pitta, and you know, we're all told that like raw vegetables and salads are really healthy. You know, with vata, my digestion tends to struggle, right? So for me to eat salads, it's great to do it in the summer when it's warm outside, when my digestive fire is stronger in the middle of the day, when my digestive fire is stronger. When it's Cleveland and it's January and it's freezing outside and my body is struggling to stay warm, Vata types should not, like me, should not be eating raw vegetables because the amount of effort it's going to take to digest that food is not worth it, right? It's too much hot. It's too much effort, right? I should be eating, you know, stews and roasted vegetables and soups and things that are easier to digest, Mm. right? So part of it too is like understanding how to use that energy and that, you know, watches work for you and I, but my mother would stamp on it. (laughs) Right. So, Tamsin, I'd like to talk about what I consider one of the most toxic habits we have in this country. Mm. And it's a bit unusual, and that is working hard. Because I will tell you, I've been on a mission myself to change. In fact, I was on a walk the other day, and my brain was going, and I thought about this idea of disruption. And what are the opposites of leadership that need to be the opposite to be more effective? So, you know, stop talking and start listening. Those are opposites. But the other one was stop working hard and actually work less. Because I am, and, and Craig, you and I have had this conversation. I've had it with my mastermind group. Like my mastermind group as an example, when we were first scheduling our half day sessions together on Zoom, they would say, well, let's do it on Sunday. I said, why on earth are we doing it on Sunday? Well, during the week, we're working. I said, so basically, you want to take my weekend and you want to take your weekend and make it a work thing. Why, are, why can't we, why do we choose to put the, that stuff into our time? Hmm. And I think we have an addiction to busyness in this country. I think a busyness is a habit. So can you speak to that habit of busyness hmm. and working hard? Absolutely. And I and having grown up in Europe and spending, you know, large chunks of my life regularly still in Europe every year, I'm really, really struck by that. And the statistics back it up too. Like most Americans don't take even the limited amount of vacation they have because of fear that they're going to lose their job, right? This is one of only two countries in the entire world that has no maternity leave. Suriname is the only other country in the world. And this is the United States of America, right? I got 10 weeks unpaid maternity leave with my first child in this country, working for a large university. So yes, 
this is a huge issue. I think there is, um, there is, I'm not sure what the word is I'm looking for, but it's something around this idea of like worshiping at the altar of busyness and stress, mm. right? It's almost like it's a competition for who can work more, work harder, be busier. Like, oh my God, I'm so busy. No, 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 I'm busier than you. No, 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 I'm busier than you. Like somehow that's like a badge of honor, right? Like I'm so much busier than you, don't you know? Um, and I think that it's, you know, the more and more sick people get, the more and more, you know, from things that are preventable. I mean, I think that's one of the things that is a huge um, sort of ding, 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 right, in this country is the amount of preventable diseases that people have, mm, yeah. right, that could be prevented by eating well, exercising more, sleeping more, you know, in having the time to cook food that is healthy and nutritious, <laughs> right, and not be in this kind of fast, fast, fast. So, yes, yeah, so I think there is a definite issue there. Uh, there are a few people who really step into the space really well. Kate Northrup is one of them. She has a book called Do Less and a whole movement. And it's based around, it's for women, based around the lunar cycle and that women should track their productivity according to where they are in their cycle. And if they are post or pre, they, if they don't have cycles anymore or they're postmenopausal, you follow the cycles of the moon, right? Which have different energy of being like out there, being more withdrawn, being hmm. in a sense of creativity, being in a state of getting things done, right? So that sort of fits with more of the energy of paying attention to the world you're living, right? And the way that I look at it as well in the Ayurvedic energy is that the different seasons have different energies associated with them and that the different times of day have different energies associated with them. And when you don't fight the natural energy out there, it makes it easier. So one of the big things I say to people is like, you know, at the end of the day, think about how many cycles of um, life we've been through, like, the, like homo, how long Homo sapiens have been around and then how short, techno how, how few cycles of generations we've had technology, right? I mean, you think, I think about my grandparents were born in 1918, 19, right? And that hundred year period we've gone through in terms of the leaps of technology. So our systems are not designed to cope with the amount of input that we give them, right? They are really, really not. And so when you can learn to step back from that and tap into nature and tap into the natural cycles of life and tap into time off and create boundaries around that, it can be really helpful to be healthy and be more productive. And I think you know, there's two ways to look at this in terms of managing it as a leader. One is a, a mindset shift that I found really helpful, which is that I see reading professional development books, reading novels, walking with my dog, sitting and having a cup of coffee with my children as part of what makes me a whole back to the thing of integrity, being in alignment as a human. Yeah. And if I put all of those things to the weekend, to before my workday and after my workday starts. I'm not really recognizing that all of those make me whole. Mm. So for me, a big mindset shift around that was recognizing that, you know, all of those things are part of my business day, right? Rather than that these things need to be put off to the outside hours, right? And that I only do this at the weekend or I only do this in the evenings, right? And the other thing that I think is really, really important, and the study is not new, but the, you know, the, the regrets of the dying, the five regrets of the dying, 
What do they talk about in that? And what has the pandemic shown up? Relationship, the connections we have with people are the things that we as humans are primed for, connection. It's the juice of life. Right, like, have you read this book? This book is, I'm gonna be reviewing it with my books and banter partner, Together by Vivek Murthy. But Vivek Murthy was the um, Surgeon General in 2014 to 17, I believe. And, you know, he recognized isolation. Hmm. And he targeted isolation as this huge issue, again, which ties into all of these sicknesses and illnesses. So back to this issue of overworking and worshiping it, is it creates more isolation because we're spending more and more time doing the work which on your deathbed, you don't sit there and go, oh, yay, I should have worked more. <laughs> you go, oh, I should, you know, the people were dying going, I wish I'd allowed myself to be me. Mm, I wish I'd so allowed important. myself to live the life I wanted, to spend yes. more time with those I love. Right. Yeah, those are so, I'm sorry, so I you important. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's a great soapbox to get on. Absolutely. And, and I think we can't stress that enough. There's, you know, talking about stress. Um, we're really, when we look at that, it's the isolationism is causing a pretty big issue in COVID, you know? So my wife is a teacher. She has some, some students that were formerly straight A students now failing all of their classes. You have, you know, a very, a variety of different things going on. And now the, the students are not able to have the same type of connectedness as they had before. And of course, a lot of workers as well, you know, we're, we're all in this place of, okay, now everything's digital. How much are we really connecting yeah. with those people around us? I think, right. you know, even on Zoom, we can do a pretty good job of having some connection, but there's something different from having a hug, right? So oh it's, it's actually God, been nice having my wife work at yeah. home because then I can just walk in the other room, just give her a hug. <laughs> totally. Well, and also there's different forms of isolation. You know, there's three different kinds of isolation, I recall. One is the isolation of the personal intimate relationship, right? So somebody can have a really, you know, great, strong social community, which is yeah. the second, right? A community of, of friends and people that they do hobbies with and that they read and hang out with. But if they don't have that primary social like connection of, their, of a marriage or a relationship, they can feel really lonely. Or yeah. they can have this amazing marriage, but they don't have any friends, right? right? And so they don't, that, you know, they like the husband or the wife is like, what, like, what I don't, or like, I don't understand. Like, why am I not enough? Because they're lonely in that. And then there's the third kind of isolation, which is the kind of broader community, like job, volunteer, mission driven, right. kind of, you know, community. And you can be isolated in one or two of those. And I think, you know, we see that like the school district that my kids are in, it's, I think it's 45% free and reduced lunch. So the thing that's been really, you know, nerve wracking here is that the kids who the school was the place of safety and community and connection, right? And they weren't getting the food at home and they weren't getting the connection and the community at home, right? So they're in a very different state than my children who, you know, come, you know, from who have who have so much privilege at home, right? And they're not worrying about food. They're not worrying about do they have internet access or whether they've got a computer whether they've got clothes like, or, you know, it's a very, you know, so those different types of isolation can also be confusing to people because you think like you're not isolated. <laughs> well, wow. you know, you, it's interesting you brought up that the five regrets of the dying because Craig, did we have another guest recently that talked about that or was yes. it on? Mm-hmm. So 
I mean, I sort of have the same question for you as I did them. I have yet to meet a human being and to have that conversation. I've had it probably with hundreds of people who disagreed with that. And in fact, they all agreed with it, but their actions don't support it. Right. So my question to you is, I often like to go to what's in the way of that? Because to me, I look at like running a, a race. Do I want to run a hundred yard dash or I want to run a hundred yard hurdle? I'd rather run a hundred yard dash, even though I'm not a sprinter, as you know, in person, <laughs> Tamsin. So I'm looking at what's in the way of that, my beliefs or whatever. So everybody seems to get it, but we're not putting it in action. What needs to change? Well, I mean, you know, interestingly, from a coaching perspective, I generally find that people don't come to me unless they're in pain. So unfortunately, I think a lot of times people don't get that until they're in pain, right? They have a diagnosis. They have a relationship issue. They lose a job. One of their kids says, you're never there, right? Or people get into a state of what I call the sort of the rinse repeat. Is this all there is? Is this all there is? Is this all there is? It's the same again and again and again. So I've generally found that people aren't, with my kind of coaching, are not willing to do the work unless they're in pain, which is really sad. And yeah. so I think, you know, as a society, you know, part of it is to do with how we set up education, right? I mean, I, you know, I look at the educational system that we, we have right now. And one of the things that makes me really concerned living in the U.S is that 70 million people voted for somebody who, you know, had a particular, was able to manipulate in a particular way. And they understood what he said based on data that they didn't really understand, right? So this idea of looking at data, where is the information coming from? And can I make sense of that? And I think one of the things that we don't do well in this country in terms of education is helping people look at information, gather it in, collate it, make sense of it, debate it, and separate their emotions from the facts, right? What, and we tell ourselves you, stories? That's part of it, but it's also we're very funneled into it. But it's partly like, where are you getting your information from? And how does that tell the bigger story, right? Mm. How do we understand what is important? And if our educational system is, can you fill in all of these blank dots and get all of these numbers right? And that's when you're going to get an A rather than, can you sit here and have a discussion with this person about something that has huge impact on the way we live as a society and has huge impact on the choices we make in terms of the way that we treat each other and the planet rather than, can you name everything and get all the D dots and E dots and, you know. I yeah. love, uh, I don't know how much you read, if any, Seth Godin or get his uh, mm -hmm. newsletters. He's one of the few that yeah. I read every day. And he often writes about the education system. And it's beautiful to me. It is the answer, but there's so much resistance because what he said was, yes, if there's certain information they need, okay, here's what we're going to do. On day one, we're going to give them the final exam. Yeah. Totally and they're going to spend sense. the time they can spend part of the time learning all those answers that you believe they need, but we're really going to spend the course learning to ask questions, learning to be thoughtful, learning to be discerning, learning to process information. We're going to teach people how to think for themselves. And then at the end, and, and the, the feedback is, well, but then everybody will get an A. 
Uh, wow. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? They, they learned the information that you said they needed. It was no longer a memory test, and they all grew through the process, and they all grew differently. We're yeah. not going to grade people on personal growth. That's not the right. standard. So he, I think it's brilliant, but we are so institutionalized. I think yeah. that's a big issue beyond education. Institutionalized yeah. thinking yeah. or culturized right. is the word I use a lot. Culturizing yeah. how we lead, culturizing how we work, culturizing how we take time off or don't. Yeah, but our education system is still tied back to the old model of, you know, you got to work, get a job, do, do what you need to do. And like you were saying earlier, Tamson, you know, get a mortgage, do, do all these things. And then finally realize, Hey, I'm my ladders against the wrong wall. I'm, I'm not doing what I need to do to feel good about myself, to be happy. Well, Tamson, you know, I knew this was going to be magical, but I cheated because I have talked to you on the phone and <laughs> we got to share a drink together uh, the last time I was in Cleveland. So I already knew. Uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Not only for sharing, but thank you for the work you do in the world yeah. and for your passion. We were talking about this on a mastermind yesterday that so many people say they're passionate, but borrowing Mark LeBlanc's word, they're really just interested. <laughs> and and you are clearly passionate. And I wish the time will come. It'll be in the Carter vault. We'll have pe this video so people can see uh, your uh, <laughs> energy, not just feel it. But I know they felt right. it. So thank you for that. So, Tamson, anything in particular you want to share with our listeners and promote or highlight for them today? Sure. Yes. Um, I am um, launching a four-week program in January, um, which I'm really excited about, um, which will continue in different variations and cycles where I'm going to help people process that this version is going to be processing 2020. So doing a little bit of that <laughs> looking back, yeah, what worked, what didn't, in four key areas that I think are really important and follow a, a yogic philosophical framework for creating your amazing life and business and doing some deep QC reflection and then creating an action plan for stepping forward. So I'm calling it the call to clarity 2021. Um, so if anybody's interested in that, please reach out and contact me about that because I'm super excited about that. So how can they contact you? They can find my email, Tamsin at TamsinAfter.com. Okay. I'm also on all the all the handles, you know, Tamsin Aster on Instagram, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. Okay. And we'll, of course, put those in the show notes as well. Absolutely. So we always wrap up with a couple questions. And the first one for you, Tamsin, is what's the book? Capital T-H-E. What is the book people <laughs> need to read? So the book that, you know, really changed my life in terms of thinking about leadership this year was The Buddha and the Badass by Vishen Lakhiani. <laughs> by whom? Right? Vishen Lakhiani. Here, oh, okay, yeah. here it is, right here. Yeah. And you can see I've got all these tags in it. So Vishen Lakhiani started Mind Valley, which oh, is yeah. this huge platform, right? And it's also one of the biggest companies which had no startup money, which is fascinating. But what's really brilliant about this book is that he weaves together the two energies, which he thinks, and I also believe, is vital for being successful in business and in life, which is the badass energy, which is the sort of disruptive entrepreneurial energy, the willingness to think differently, do it differently, not accept the status quo. And the Buddha energy, which I'm also a Buddhist, 
which of, so of course that was very appealing to me in terms of the title, but also, but he talks about the Buddha energy in terms of tapping into intuition, being willing to slow down and get back to the beginning, back into alignment in, in integrity. Because when you do that, the universe will speak to you, right? Like, you know, all of the like law of attraction, all that stuff that so many people poo poo, we know the stuff works. If you don't embody an action intuition and you get that thing of like, I need to call that person today. I need to email. Whenever I do that, they're like, you were on my mind, right? Like we know the stuff works, right? So that's what he talks about in there. And it's a, it's a, it's an updated version, if you will, of his initial book, which is the code of the extraordinary mind. And he basically lays out how to structure your business around that, which mm. to me is fascinating and brilliant. So everybody needs to read this book because it's amazing. The Buddha and the badass. Well, that's a great transition to the, the next question, which is, I love movies. Uh, so what's the movie, television, series, scene, quote, character, whatever it is that speaks to you about leadership? So I love the movie and I've watched it multiple times, Moonstruck. Oh, yes. <laughs> right? Such a good movie. Yes. Um, but the line in it that just always comes back up again and again is when Olympia Dukakis is sitting there having dinner on her <laughs> own. She ends up being joined by the professor who's been dumped again by one of his students. And he's just like, I don't understand. Like, they come in, they're really young. They think everything I do is interesting. Don't shit where you eat. That's what she said. <laughs> so for me, in terms of speaking to leadership, it's about understanding boundaries. It's really, really important to understand your boundaries to be a good leader and a good human in any relationship you have. And that involves a number of key things. One is what feels good to me? What do I need or not need in this situation? What is appropriate and then how can i communicate that with the people who need to know and understand that yeah yeah it's so good we we have agreements with people who are close to us it's like you know if i want to make some massive changes i'm going to enlist my wife's help rather than just say hey you know this is what i'm doing um because she's a, an incredible support in the things that i do well thank you tamson and it was awesome to see you yes uh, you. great conversation thank you so much If you like this podcast, you'll love the Cartavera Tribe. The Cartavera Tribe is a community of growth-committed leaders who want to connect, engage, and grow themselves, their people, and their businesses. Cartavera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, assessments, and events to challenge you and help you grow. And the Cartavera Tribe is a membership like none other. You'll get live access to Craig and Jeff where you can ask questions, as well as masterminds where you can get answers from other leaders who've already solved your greatest challenges. You'll have access to additional interviews and a variety of courses, tools, and resources to help you achieve your biggest goals. We have monthly game days where we have challenges and competitive games to help you grow your leadership capabilities. And you'll get a personal growth Sherpa who will guide you to help you reach your growth goals. To find out more, go to cartavera.com. That's C-A-R-D-I-V-E-R-A.com. See you on the inside. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. 
I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.